Christ that we worship today, amen? And this is what the scripture says, that there is no other name given among men, given under heaven by which we can be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ that we exalt. And really what we were just singing there for a second is really the heart's cry of why we send teams to St. Vincent or to Liberia or anywhere else, that the nations would proclaim the greatness of Christ, amen? That, that they would know his salvation, that they would hear the gospel. And uh, that's what it's about, lifting high the name of Christ in worship. Let's just pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the chance to be here this morning and to be with family. Uh, Lord, to be able to exalt your name, Jesus. Jesus, you are high and lifted up. You are the king. And uh, Lord, this morning we want to worship you. And Lord, we want to hear from your word this morning. Lord, we want to uh, be taught by your spirit, God. So Lord, would you teach us through your word as we spend time together? We love you. In your name, amen. Well, good morning, Harvest. It's kind of nice just to be able to say that, just like I say it normally on a Sunday. And uh, my name is Brian White, and I have the privilege of pastoring Harvest Bible Chapel on the north side of Indianapolis. I'm just thrilled to be part of a family of churches uh, that are going to be serious about proclaiming the gospel with boldness, proclaiming God's word, lifting high the name of Christ in worship. So we feel very much at home uh, this morning. Uh, my wife, Laura, is with me and uh, our five children. We decided uh, last time I came, I just came by myself. And this time we decided we wanted to try to pump up your children's ministry numbers a little bit uh, with our five kids. Um, our daughter, Karis, is nine. Our second daughter, Jocelyn, is six. Uh, we have twin-year-old prophets, Samuel and Nathan. And then uh, the caboose, Molly, uh, is two years old this week. And so uh, we're really thankful to be with you. Thanks for letting us be here. I'm, I'm really thankful for your pastor. Uh, let me just tell you how I feel about Doug and Karen. Uh, they are gifted servants of the Lord. Uh, they are valued ministry partners. They've been such an encouragement to Laura and me as we've kind of been walking this church plant journey with you guys. And I hope you know how privileged and honored you are uh, to have a pastor like Doug and a pastor's wife like Karen. And I hope that you tell them that often. I hope they always know how much you love them. Uh, but they are just uh, great servants of the Lord. I'm really thankful that our people are able to be fed from him this morning. This morning, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4. Uh, Revelation chapter 4 is where we're going to be in God's inspired, uh, totally without error, completely sufficient for life, word of God. Uh, that's where we're going to be, Revelation chapter 4. And we're talking about the privilege of worship. And uh, just as you turn there, uh, let me just touch, uh, touch base on the fact that, that we're so thankful to be in partnership, and we are looking forward to being together in the fall uh, with you when James McDonald is here. I hope you're writing that down on your schedule uh, so that you can be there as we get a chance to worship together, hear God's word together. Uh, it's, it's interesting to have two churches that are this close, and yet we're hardly ever, if ever, together except in those times. So please make sure that's a priority. Uh, Revelation chapter 4 and uh, Laura and I just came off vacation not too long ago. We were on the East Coast, and um, I'm from the state of Virginia. I grew up not far from Virginia Beach, and so it's a priority for us that we get our kids to the Atlantic Ocean from time to time so they understand that lakes aren't oceans and all that kind of stuff. And um, <clears throat> so we took our kids to the Outer Banks uh, not too long ago. And uh, can I just tell you that the water temperature in the Atlantic Ocean at the beginning of May is somewhere around 63 degrees. And while that is a great air temperature, it is not a great water temperature at all. In fact, it's not warm at all in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but I, I, I got a little observation while I was there. At my age, I'm really content to just look at the ocean. I grew up in it all the time, and I just, I'm content to, it's beautiful. 
Uh, it's beautiful. I love to hear it. I mean, I, just everything about it, that's nice. Look out the window from the beach house, see the beach, beautiful. Uh, my nine-year-old daughter and everybody nine under has a totally different take on things. And their whole thing is like, I, I just want to like dabble my feet. If we walk, I'm good. Okay, and honestly, parents, here's really the thing for us. We're not getting in unless we have to, right? Uh, but for the nine and under crowd, it's like, oh, I'm totally in. Like, I'm expecting like penguins and big chunks of ice to come floating by. And like, my kids are just out there having a good time. And uh, they're like, come on, daddy, come out here with us. I'm like, no, it's all right. We're, we're good where we are. And, uh, but you know what? They want to be totally in, hair wet, riding the waves, totally drenched in it. And, and their whole thing is they, they want to have fun. I want to preserve my sanity. And so I'm kind of staying my distance. And, uh, but you know what interesting happened? In the middle of the week, it got warm enough. I thought I'd venture in. And uh, so on Wednesday of that week, I got out in the water. I got further than waist deep. And um, I, was, I was riding the boogie board. And glad there's no video of that anywhere. Um, but, you know, I really enjoyed it. And there was something about just kind of like jumping in, being immersed in it that I really enjoyed. And, you know, I'm mindful that worship can be a lot like the Atlantic Ocean water temperature in May. It's good to look at. And we kind of dabble in it a little bit here or there. We get our foot in. But there's something about it that we just kind of stand back from sometimes. But listen to me, the enjoyment and the privilege is when we jump all in, get our hair wet. You notice I didn't say get my hair wet. Get our hair wet and, and, and get into it. And what causes us to be content to just dabble our feet in and just look and be an observer as opposed to a participant? I think this morning what I want to share with you is this. Do you realize what a high privilege it is to walk into the throne room of heaven itself and worship Jesus Christ? What I want to share this morning is, is certainly theological. It's certainly from God's word, but it's also very practical. And, and as we were talking through the service, um, I really want to give you a chance to respond, uh, to apply God's word and not just agree with it. And so as we look into God's word, please understand that what we're going after this morning is understanding the privilege of our worship. Look with me, if you would, at Revelation chapter 4. I'm starting in verse 1. <clears throat> after this, I looked, <clears throat> and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive Glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. If we would worship the Lord biblically, if we would worship the Lord passionately, 
there's certain things in this passage that we need to understand. There's certain principles of worship. And this morning, I just want to give you two main principles from the text of God that show us what it means to worship God biblically and passionately. You know, whenever the Lord gives us a glimpse of heaven, one of the things that's on my heart is this. You know, God, can I just have that now? Like, why do I have to wait? Can I just have that now? And, and you know, sometimes we're not about that. Sometimes we're like about, you know, we're more about thinking about now and, and we're thinking about heaven later. And my thing is this, God, when you show me a picture of heaven later, I want to have it now. And when it comes to this particular chapter, it's like this. Look, when we look at our worship now, how much does it reflect what worship's going to look like forever? And I just want to share with you two main principles. Here's the first one. You ready? If my worship would be biblical and passionate, I must get the right focus. I must get the right focus for my worship. King Jesus on the throne. This is what it is. This is the right focus. If we would, if we would understand biblically where God wants us to be, it must start with the focus that God wants us to have. Look with me, if you would, in the text, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Just get context. Whenever you jump into a passage and it's like, after this, you're like, after what? And in chapter 2 and 3, we have the letters to the, to the seven churches in Asia Minor. But really, this goes back to chapter 1. And it is the Apostle John in chapter 1 that gets a face-to-face with the exalted Christ. It's a magnificent picture. And what he's saying is this. After, there's kind of a break in the text here between chapter 3 and now to chapter 4. And it's like this. All of a sudden, there was a change here. And in chapter 4 is what he says. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. Hey, how often do you pray that? Lord, I want to come up there. I just, I long for the day, Lord, that you will just say, come up here. You see that? Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. God is going to give John a lesson in what forever worship looks like, and it starts with the right focus. Let me offer you four observations from the beginning part of the text. Here's the first observation. Here's what you'll find. The throne in this particular scene is not empty. The throne is not empty. Look at verse 2, if you would. It says very clearly, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Now, underline this. With one seated on the throne. If our focus would be right, we have to understand the throne is not empty. The throne is occupied. Final authority at the end of the picture is not up for grabs. In fact, I would just suggest to you it's not up for grabs now. It's not like we're waiting for the end of the picture. King Jesus is reigning now. And, and, and the text of Scripture says that at the name of Jesus, every knee and every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is what? Lord. And the issue isn't will you acknowledge that he has the authority. The issue is when will you acknowledge that? But I want you to see this. If our focus would be right, it, it must be to the one who's on the throne. It's King Jesus on the throne. I firmly believe that you can't disconnect the concept of worship from the reality of kingship. It is the king who deserves our worship. And like, well, Brian, I already know that. But we know who should be worshiped. And we know he's deserving of the worship. He has the place of worship. So maybe the question would be this. Do we worship him? Do we see the throne really is occupied? Or, or maybe you're like I am sometimes when it's like this. God, I kind of built you a larger throne so that you can be up there and I can kind of get up there with you, right? And the Bible speaks to that. God says, I will not share my glory with anyone. There's only one person on this throne in the end. If we'd have the right focus, we have to understand this. It is Jesus on the throne. 
It's Jesus on the throne. And I have to stop and consider when I'm trying to focus my heart for worship is this. Is Jesus on the throne? That once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. We know he should be worshiped. Next observation, look in the text. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The first observation is the throne is occupied. Here's the second one. You ready? The throne is awesome in every way. The throne, this isn't like a, this isn't like a weak picture, right? It's not like, well, we kind of just had a little backdrop and we dropped the throne in the middle of it. It's not that, right? Consider the picture. The throne is awesome. He says, look, when I'm describing the one on the throne, it's like Jasper and Carnelian. Both of those would be stones that kind of have a reddish brown tint. But here's the thing. When they interact with light, it just beams. And what you have is an awesome picture. In fact, I kind of believe, look, when we're looking at it, and it's like, look, his appearance, Jasper, Carnelian. And then he says, like, around the throne, there's this rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. I believe right here, like, John's just getting beyond himself. He's like, and there's like a rainbow, and, and, and it looks like an emerald. You're like, wait a minute, I've seen some rainbows, and I haven't seen too many of them that look like emeralds. Here's what he's saying. It's unbelievable. It's awesome. It's awesome in every way. It's magnificent. This throne is incredible. The throne room scene is incredible. It's awesome in every way. From the throne, there are flashes of lightning. There are peals of thunder. Before the throne, there's these seven torches and this, this crystal river, it looks like, the sea of glass. And what you have is magnificence. What you have is awesome. You have an elevated view of Christ. Hey, do we struggle with a, a right view of Christ? Do we in the church today struggle with a low view of Jesus? Do we see the magnificence of who he really is? Last summer, one of the more embarrassing things that's ever happened in my life happened to me in Chicago. I uh, went away for a couple of days, this kind of spiritual retreat, work on the preaching calendar. I'm sure Doug does that. And uh, I'm sure he goes to greater places than Chicago to do that. Um, but I'm in Chicago, and I'm, I'm staying in a hotel. That the hotel rooms are all around kind of a big courtyard. So I'm in Chicago, and I'm like, well, you know what? I should eat Chicago food while I'm here. And so I take a break, and I'm going to go get some pizza. And so I'm in my tattered shorts and a T-shirt my flip-flops. And I walk downstairs, and when I walk into the lobby, they're setting up for this wedding reception. I'm like, oh, that's great. Well, they're just setting up. I should have plenty of time to get back and not worry about it, but as is typical when I go anywhere and don't believe that I need to ask for directions to anywhere, I got lost going to get my pizza. So I, when I came back with my pizza and my tattered shorts and my t-shirt and flip-flops, I walked into uh, an Indian wedding, a Hindu wedding. And if you've never seen one of those before, it is a sight to behold for a couple reasons. First of all, everybody is dressed from head to toe in the finest that they have, the finest fabrics, gold dripping everywhere. And the second thing is, every person of that religion for the entire nation comes to all their weddings. I firmly believe that. And they were all in the courtyard of this hotel. And so as I walked in the door, I'm like, this is not good. Here I am, I've got a pizza, and I'm trying, and I've got, I just gotta get to the elevators. I just gotta get, and I'm like, there's so many people between me and the elevators. And so I'm like looking for a way around and there's people everywhere. I'm like, there's no way to get around it. So literally I'm walking through this wedding reception, holding a pizza 
in my tattered shorts. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Please excuse me. I'm sorry. I just need to get to the elevator. I'm sorry. And it took me like five minutes to get across this lobby to the elevator. And I was so ashamed because I, I was dressed so inappropriately for their event. And, and their event was so magnificent. And I just kind of can't hear. I come with my pizza, right? And it's just one of those things I'll always remember. You know, I wonder how many of us in our soul, when we come to the throne room of God, come in so casually because we miss the magnificence of who Christ is. And we just kind of bring our tattered parts and, well, I, I'm here and, and I, I didn't prepare, but I'm, you know what, but I'm here. And here's the thing, listen, the throne is occupied and it is awesome in every way. Jesus Christ is magnificent. What happens when we have a low view of Christ? Can I just give you three things that I think will happen if our view of Christ is low? If we don't see him in his magnificence, if we don't see his unbelievable faithfulness, if we don't see his unmatched grace, a couple of things will happen. Number one, if we have a low view of Christ, it actually asserts a view of him that's not right. We're believing a lie. It, it changes the way we view him. We begin to believe something that's not the truth about Jesus. If, if that's what we walk around with, if, if Jesus is just my buddy and not just my king, and by the way, the scripture says that he is the friend who sticks closer than a brother, right? But he is the king. If I walk around with just a low view of Christ, I actually assert a view of him that's not right. And what happens is at least the second thing, it allows me to accept a view of myself that's not right. I begin to have a high view of myself. If I can bring Jesus down, it's usually because I'm trying to bring myself up. Do you guys remember Isaiah chapter 6? Do you remember what happened there? Isaiah looked into the throne room of God and he saw God, what does it say? High and lifted up, high view of God. And what happened? Was he like, hey, look, let me climb up on the throne room with you. He wasn't doing that, right? Why? Because he saw God for who he really is. And then he understood who he really was. Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and I have seen the Lord God. And I need to get cleaned up. Here's the thing. If I have a low view of Christ, it not only allows me to believe a lie about him, it allows me to believe a lie about me. And I think the most dangerous thing is the third thing. It totally erases the power of the gospel. See, it is this magnificent Christ, holy in every way, magnificent in every way, who left heaven to come here and put on flesh to take my sin and your sin and nail it to a cross. When we couldn't do anything to change it, we don't deserve for it to be changed, but in his grace, he did that. And here's the thing. If we would walk around with a low view of Christ, we'll miss the magnificence of who he is, but we'll also miss the magnitude of his sacrifice. The throne is awesome in every way. Here's the third observation. The throne is central to everything else in the scene. You'll notice that the throne is central to everything else in the scene. If we look at verse four, you see around the throne, Verse 5, from the throne. Verse 6, before the throne. Verse 6 again, around the throne. Verse 10, before the throne. It's almost like every single thing in the text from the author is written to get you to look at the throne. Like the throne's in the middle of everything. All attention's on the throne. All attention's on the occupant of the throne. All attention's on the voice of the one from the throne. Everything is pointing to the throne. The throne is central to everything else. Every action in the chapter, back to the throne. I go, why is that important? Does Jesus have the central place in your life? Because this is the picture for all eternity. Jesus in the central place because of the magnificence of who he is. Does Jesus have the central place in your life? 
Is he right in the middle of things or is he somewhere in the mix? And if we really would be honest about it, sometimes we're just content to get Jesus in the mix, right? Like I get Jesus on my schedule as opposed to Jesus on the throne in the middle of my life. And it's like, well, as I go through this busy week, this kind of crowds Jesus over and this kind of crowds Jesus over. Understand, what would it be like to understand the privilege of worship if it would keep Jesus central on the throne of our lives? Dead in the middle. But it's so important because here's the thing. He gave it all to bring us to God. Consider what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us because we concluded this, that the one who died for all, therefore all have died and died. He died for all. Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let me say it again. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do our lives revolve around our Savior, or is our Savior just in the mix? Like, Brian, I thought you were talking about worship. Here's the thing. If our worship would be biblical, it must be rightly focused, and that's King Jesus on the throne. It's King Jesus in the center of it all. It's King Jesus in all of his magnificence. The throne is not empty, and it's certainly not pushed to the side. How are you doing with that? When I think about getting our focus right on Sunday, I give our people a hard time, and I'm sure Doug might do it to you too, or Nick maybe. Like, you know, it comes like 9.05, people are still trickling in. I'm like, hey, hey, 9.05, we start at 9 o'clock. How about you be here? And people are like, look, why are you busting my tail about this? It's like, look, here's the thing. I really believe this. If we would come to church with the understanding that what's happened really is God's thrown open the throne room doors, and he's saying, come on. The throne is central, and it's awesome, and you get to proclaim the magnificence of your Savior. I just really believe we're not going to be in the hallway fiddling around with the pictures. How about you? I just think, and you're like, Brian, you know what? We're a portable church. We are too, and I get this. Everything breaks with three minutes to go. That's the truth. Something's going to break with three minutes to go. Do you think Satan's not at work and all that? You know why? Because he wants to keep you from the throne room. If you're ever going to have a problem with your kids, it's probably going to happen two minutes to the service right? And you're going to rush in here and it's going to take you forever. Here's the thing. Understand this. I believe that this is a discipline. I believe that worship is something that we work at, but here's the thing. You have the privilege to go into the throne room. The throne is occupied. It's magnificent and it's dead in the middle of all things. May that be the truth in our churches too, right? That Jesus who is above all things would be in the center of all things. Here's the fourth observation. The throne is surrounded by living beings. We're told in verse 4 that there are 24 elders around the throne. They're sitting on thrones there of themselves. And then in verses 6 through 11, we're hearing about angels. And I've heard lots of people, lots of pastors go into, let me explain who the 24 elders are, and they talk for 20 minutes about that. Note that the passage does not tell you who the 24 elders are. Would it be possible that we could figure it out? It's possible. But I would just suggest to you from the text, that's not important. Are they important? Yes. They wouldn't be in the text if they're not important. But the whole point of them being unidentified is this. They're not as important as the one on the throne, right? But I want you to see this. The throne isn't off in some room where nobody can come around it. Jesus isn't just off in a room somewhere. And the, and the, and the unbelievable thing for all of heaven will be this. Jesus will be with us. We will be with Jesus. That's what the book of Revelation says. That the king is with his people. Do you understand the privilege of being able to walk into the throne room and talk to Jesus, the, the central figure of it all, 
These, get, these elders are seated. They're wearing white garments, which saying they've been washed in the righteousness of Christ. They have golden crowns, which means they have reward and authority. But I want you to see this. All of that pales in comparison to Christ. And then we start hearing about these living creatures, the eyes, the faces, the wings, the position. I want you to know this. The throne is occupied. It's magnificent in every way. It's central to everything else. And it's surrounded by living beings. How often are you taking advantage of the privilege to be one of the living beings around Christ proclaiming the magnificence of who he is? The magnitude of that privilege. So just as we think about application, I would have to remind you again that this will be our life for those of us that are redeemed, for those of us who have responded in faith and repentance to Christ. This will be our life forever. What an awesome thought. But when I think of that awesome thought, I, as I was working through this in my study, I had to think this. If this is what it'll look like forever, why doesn't it always look like that now? And three questions that I wrote down for me, and I'll share them with you. Now, why wait until heaven to see this? And really, at times, we just need to face up to a couple questions. Here's a couple questions that I would give you that were important for me in the study. Here's the first one. Is the throne of my life occupied, and if so, by whom? Is the throne of my life, is the throne of your life occupied? And if so, by whom? I would just suggest to you that there's not a single person living where the throne is unoccupied. The question isn't, is there anybody on it? The question is, who's on it? Is the throne of your life occupied? And if so, by whom? Because here's the thing. If it's you, the right focus of worship won't be there. Here's the second question. Has the magnificence of Christ waned in my life? See, I remember on August 1st, 1987, I remember as a, a young boy, I go into a Christian camp after hearing the gospel over and over and over and over again. I remember hearing about this magnificent King Jesus who came and died to pay for my sins when I couldn't do anything to change it. And I remember for the first time seeing the magnificence of Christ, the greatness of Jesus. And I remember responding, I need that. I need your salvation. I need you to forgive me. And you know what? In times in my life, over the close to 25 years that have passed since that time, I have to say this. At times, the magnificence of Christ has waned. Has the magnificence of Christ and all that he is waned in your life? Do you still see him as, as awesome as he really is? Or are you adjusted to and accepting of a low view of him? If so, your focus won't be right. Do you still see the beauty of who he is, what he's done for you? Here's the third thing. Because I believe it's possible that Jesus can be on the throne of someone's life. I believe it's possible for us to be seeing him in magnificence. And the problem comes in the third question. Does Jesus on the throne have the central place in your life? Or are you content for him just to be on the list? Does Jesus have that central place? Like, Brian, well, what's, what's all that to do about focus? Here's the thing. If it's a low view of Christ, if it's Jesus not on the throne, if it's the throne somehow moved over, the focus will move away. And what God wants is right response based on right focus. If I would have biblical, passionate worship, I must have worship that is focused on the right things, focused on King Jesus on the throne. Well, if our focus is right, I think what you'd find in the text is this. 
that there's a right response that I need to give in my worship. The second principle in the text this morning is, is I want us to give a right response in worship. Wholehearted exaltation of King Jesus. I don't think what we're asking for here is a kumbaya moment. I don't think it's like, worthy are you, Lord. Worthy are you. You're good, Lord. What does that say? Worthy are you, O Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What he's looking for is a wholehearted response. The object and the action of our worship. And kind of what we see here in verses 8 through 11 are kind of a microcosm of the whole piece. Look at verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." Just go a little bit deeper. We're supposed to be focusing on Christ, but what are we focusing on Christ? Like, what, what are we focusing on? Well, if, our, if we would have right response, I want you to see the object of our worship rightly. And note here in verses 8 through 11 that it is clearly given to Jesus. Who we are worshiping is Jesus. We've already kind of established that, right? But it's not just who he is, because it makes it very clear that he's the one on the throne. And the consistency of the throne room in the, in the scripture is unbelievable. It's like Ezekiel uh, chapter 1, Exodus 19, Isaiah chapter 6, Revelation 4, Revelation 21, incredibly consistent. And what we see is this, unbelievable, 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 unbelievable. And why that's so important is this, when we see the object of our worship rightly, we see all that he left and we begin to understand the magnitude of why he had to come. I heard someone say once, if we would ever understand the unbelievable magnitude of his grace, we have to see the unbelievable magnitude of our sin first. And when I understand this is what he left, I begin to understand how much he loved me. And I remember, and I remember thinking about how he's obedient to the Father. That's what the text says in coming to us. Christ is the eternal king. It's so important. We understand better what he left. But I would just point to a couple other things in the text. And this is really why we worship. This is why he is the object of our worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Let's just go that far. Why do we worship Jesus? Because of his character. Because he's holy. What does it mean to be holy? Help me out with this. What does holy mean? Set apart, separate, totally clean, totally without sin, right? And everything about the definition screams not me, right? Right? And not you. And everything about the definition screams Jesus. Why worship Jesus? Because he's holy. Because his characteristics. He's above and beyond. He's transcendent. He's above and beyond us. And yet he's so personal to us. Why worship Jesus? Why should he be the object of worship? Well, the angels say it's because of his character. In fact, if we keep looking in verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. There's another reason right there. Why worship Jesus? Because of his character and also this, because it never changes. It's forever and ever and ever. Keep looking. They fall down before him who is seated on the throne. They worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now look at this. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. 
Listen, we give response to the Lord because of his character, but we give response to the Lord Jesus because of what he's done, who he is and what he's done. And I promise you, if you will trace the characteristics of Jesus in who he is and what he's done, you will never lack the content for your worship. You'll always be able to worship because you understand who he is and what he's done. In just a few short minutes, we're going to come to communion again. Why do we do that as believers? Because we come back to remember what he's done. We come back to celebrate the reality of what was accomplished because of what he's done. Why should we worship the Lord? He's the object of our worship because of who he is and what he's done. And we should trace these characteristics. But, but there's one other principle in our response that I want us to see. We have the focus right, but in the response, how do they respond? <clears throat> You'll see two responses in the text. The first is a vocal response. Verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, I'm not an English guy, but you'll notice around that phrase there are quotation marks. Do you see that? And that tells us in the written word that somebody is saying it. It's a vocal response. We see it again in the next couple of verses. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. You see the quotation marks? What you see is a vocal response. You see them crying back out to the Lord. Here's who you are. I'm echoing back your characteristics. I'm magnifying yet again what you've done. I'm calling you worthy. I'm ascribing to you the things of great worth. How are we doing with that? Hey, I believe that just people don't live with much intensity anymore. And uh, maybe you're not a real intense person. Maybe you're kind of laid back. How many of you would say you're laid back? <clears throat> Go ahead. Like you're talking about intensity. But how many of you would say, like, I'm intense? You're like type AA, all right? Okay, and, and I'm, I'm mindful there's a lot of people that are both, but here's the thing. What you see in this chapter is intense. What you see in this chapter is not laid back. What you see in this chapter is this. Worthy are you, God. Holy are you, Jesus. What you see is intentional response, a vocal response. I believe this. At some point in time, they're gonna start showing movies in this theater again, Right? Do they show them while we're talking now? Okay, but I believe this. We meet in a school every single week and there are different teachers that will come in and work in the school during the time we're there. You know what? I want them to hear us singing the praises of Christ. I want the vocal response to blow the roof off because that's heaven in the real world now. That's the response. But I wouldn't just say it's a vocal response. I grew up in churches where we had vocal response of truth. And it was like, we sing the truth about God, we sing the truth about God, and we should. You agree with me? We should sing the truth about God. Shouldn't sing not, something not true about God, right? We sing the truth about God. But it was almost like this. If you closed your eyes, or it kind of started with clapping. If you started clapping, then you closed your eyes, then you raise your hands, then you're going to start speaking in tongues, then you're going to start handling snakes. And like, it was like this belief that it was like this slippery slope. Now, here's the thing. What the scripture says is this. There are certain things in physical response in such a way that would draw attention to ourselves. That would be inappropriate according to the text, right? Because we want to point the attention to the central one. But I believe this. What God wants is wholehearted response. And what you find is this. It's not just vocal. It's physical response. In the text, you find them falling down. It's a physical act of respect and honor. I remember the first time I saw on television uh, some TV guy like slaying people in the spirit and people were just falling down all over the place. I took like one look at that and I'm like, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. There's something crazy going on there. You know why? Because it wasn't worthy respect and honor to the central one. 
It was the elevation of an experience. And here's the thing. I want the elevation of Jesus. That's what I want. I'll never forget Laura and I being in a service one time and our guest speaker in the middle of the worship time went face down, right on the front row, face down. Everybody in the church thought the guy had a heart attack because he wasn't a young man. So people were like running over to help him. You know what he's doing? He's getting face down. He's getting face down. Maybe at times it's, it's just slipping out and kneeling in the aisle. Maybe it's making your seat an altar of exaltation to Christ. But here's the thing, wholehearted exaltation, physical response, bowing to the monarch is what we're seeing here. But not only that, you also see another physical response, the casting of their crowns before the throne. The elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. How many of you just have a random crown at home? You just, have a, you just have a random crown laying around. You're like, well, this doesn't really match the decor anymore. We'll just pack that up, right? Like, we don't have that, right? None of you are sitting, please tell me none of you have a crown, like, in your house, okay? Okay, like, like you have just, like, a crown, like, oh, you know what, I think I just wear that, to, I think I just wear that to school today, right? None of us have that, okay? So it's gonna be a pretty big deal when we get them in heaven, right? Okay, and, like, you think about that. It's a big deal that I get a crown. Like, I actually see a real crown. It's not like a Burger King crown. It's a real crown, Okay? And it's going to be a big deal. And I don't know about you, but if I were to somehow get a crown today, I'd want to hold on to it, right? Wouldn't you? What do you see in the text? You see them take the most precious things that are given and throw it back to the most precious one. Why? Because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And when I understand that he left all of that to come here, to get me, to obey the Father, to receive glory in that way, just simply say they're yours. They're yours. And what I get really convicted on is this. How am I ever going to get to the point of throwing my crowns down when I can't throw my schedule down? How am I ever going to get to the point of throwing my crowns down when I can't even get Jesus in a central place to know where to throw them? How about you? Because if we would have a right focus, it leads to a right response. And King Jesus on the throne really shows us wholehearted exaltation of King Jesus. And I'm mindful that you might be here and you might be like so many others and you're content to be like I was at the ocean. I just, I'm gonna observe and I'll dabble my feet in every once in a while. I don't think the issue is the way worship sounds or what songs we do. I don't think fundamentally those are the questions. I think the question is this, what does Jesus want? What does Jesus desire? What will it look like forever? And what we see is a grand mixture of experience. It's beautiful, and yet there's something about the passage that's terrifying. It's uncomfortable, and yet it's exhilarating. And, and really what it is is this. When we focus rightly, we get a chance to respond rightly. Do you need a reason to worship? Jesus himself came to earth. He took the nails that were deserving for us we deserve them. He took sin that I could not change and you could not change, and he took it straight to the cross. The book of Acts says that he was delivered up by the preordained plan of God. It didn't surprise God. It was part of the plan. Grace was part of the plan. And when we see our King Jesus rightly, we respond rightly. Amen? Can I pray for you? Father, thank you for today.
And Lord, this morning what we see in this passage, I believe is not just the reality of what it will be, I certainly believe it's that. Lord, I believe it's the challenge of where you want us to be even now. God, in your grace, you would give heaven in the real world now. You would love us in that way and you would allow us the privilege of worship in that way. But before I go any further, you might be here this morning and you might look at it and say, Brian, I understand what the text of scripture says. And this morning we're coming to communion, just a moment. Maybe you've never had a chance to worship Christ because you've never responded to him. This is the truth of the gospel, that the sinless one, the perfect one, came and died for you to pay for sins that you could not pay for. And this morning what he wants is response, the response of faith, the response of repentance. Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I want you as King and Lord. I give you all of my life. That's why his blood was shed. And if there ever was needing a reason to worship, that's it. So Jesus, you know the hearts of every person in this room. Lord, you know the many of us who have been busy this week and we needed to hear this from the word of God just as a challenge to return you to the central place. God, for those that are listening to me right now who are there, Lord, I pray that it would not just be agreement, but even right now as I'm praying, they would be applying your truth to repent of that and to return you, Jesus, to your rightful place. God, to the many of us who continually crawl up on the throne, God, we confess our own desire to rule our lives. Lord, help us to see you rightly that we may respond rightly to you. God, if there is one here this morning who is seeing you rightly for the first time today, God, would the response of their heart be faith in you, placing their full trust in you, giving their whole life to you, repentance, turning from sin, turning to the life that you give. Oh God, even in these moments as we head for communion, may we focus rightly on you that we may respond rightly to you. We love you in your name.